Chapter Three of the Story of My Boyhood and Youth. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Sue Anderson. The Story of My Boyhood and Youth by John Muir. Chapter Three Life on a Wisconsin Farm. Humanity in Oxen. Jack the Pony. Learning to Ride. Knob and Nell. Snakes. Mosquitoes and their kin. Fish and Fishing, Considering the Lilies, Learning to Swim, A Narrow Escape from Drowning and a Victory, Accidents to Animals. Coming direct from school in Scotland, while we were still hopefully ignorant and far from tame, notwithstanding the unnatural profusion of teaching and thrashing lavished upon us, getting acquainted with the animals about us was a never-failing source of wonder and delight. At first my father, like nearly all the backwood settlers, bought a yoke of oxen to do the farm work, and as field after field was cleared, the number was gradually increased, until we had five yoke. These wise, patient, plodding animals did all the plowing, logging, hauling, and hard work of every sort for the first four or five years, and never having seen oxen before, we looked at them with the same eager freshness of conception as we did at the wild animals. We worked with them, sympathized with them in their rest and toil and play, and thus learned to know them far better than we should have had we been only trained scientific naturalists. We soon learned that each ox and cow and calf had individual character. Old white-faced buck, one of the second yoke of oxen we owned, was a notably sagacious fellow. He seemed to reason sometimes almost like ourselves. In the fall we fed the cattle lots of pumpkins and had to split them open so that mouthfuls could be readily broken off. But Buck never waited for us to come to his help. The others, when they were hungry and impatient, tried to break through the hard rind with their teeth, but seldom with success if the pumpkin was full-grown. Buck never wasted time in this mumbling, slavering way, but crushed them with his head. He went to the pile, picked out a good one, like a boy choosing an orange or apple, rolled it down onto the open ground, deliberately kneeled in front of it, placed his broad, flat brow on top of it, brought his weight hard down and crushed it, then quietly arose and went on with his meal in comfort. Some would call this instinct, as if so-called blind instinct must necessarily make an ox stand on its head to break pumpkins when its teeth got sore, or when nobody came with an axe to split them. Another fine ox showed his skill when hungry by opening all the fences that stood in his way to the cornfields. The humanity we found in them came partly through the expression of their eyes when tired, their tones of voice when hungry and calling for food, their patient plodding and pulling in hot weather, their long, drawn-out, sighing breath when exhausted and suffering like ourselves, and their enjoyment of rest with the same grateful look as ours. We recognized their kinship also by their yawning like ourselves when sleepy, and evidently enjoying the same peculiar pleasure at the roots of their jaws by the way they stretched themselves in the morning after a good rest. By learning languages, Scotch, English, Irish, French, Dutch, a smattering of each as required in the faithful service they so willingly, wisely rendered, by their intelligent, alert curiosity manifested in listening to strange sounds, 
their love of play, the attachments they made, and their mourning long continued when a companion was killed. When we went to Portage, our nearest town, about ten or twelve miles from the farm, it would oftentimes be late before we got back, and in the summertime, in sultry, rainy weather, the clouds were full of sheet lightning, which every minute or two would suddenly illumine the landscape, revealing all its features, the hills and valleys, meadows and trees, about as fully and clearly as the noonday sunshine. Then, as suddenly, the glorious light would be quenched, making the darkness seem denser than before. On such nights the cattle had to find the way home without any help from us, but they never got off the track, for they followed it by scent like dogs. Once father, returning late from Portage or Kingston, compelled Tom and Jerry, our first oxen, to leave the dim track, imagining they must be going wrong. At last they stopped and refused to go further. Then father unhitched them from the wagon, took hold of Tom's tail, and was thus led straight to the shanty. Next morning he set out to seek his wagon and found it on the brow of a steep hill above an impassable swamp. We learned less from the cows because we did not enter so far into their lives, working with them, suffering heat and cold, hunger and thirst, and almost deadly weariness with them. But none with natural charity could fail to sympathize with them in their love for their calves, and to feel that it in no way differed from the divine mother love of a woman in thoughtful, self-sacrificing care, for they would brave every danger, giving their lives for their offspring. Nor could we fail to sympathize with their awkward, blunt-nosed baby calves, with such beautiful, wandering eyes, looking out on the world and slowly getting acquainted with things, all so strange to them and awkwardly learning to use their legs and play and fight. Before leaving Scotland, Father promised us a pony to ride when we got to America, and we saw to it that this promise was not forgotten. Only a week or two after our arrival in the woods, he bought us a little Indian pony for $13 from a storekeeper in Kingston, who had obtained him from a Winnebago or Menominee Indian in trade for goods. He was a stout, handsome bay, with long black mane and tail, and though he was only two years old, the Indians had already taught him to carry all sorts of burdens, to stand without being tied, to go anywhere over all sorts of ground, fast or slow, and to jump and swim and fear nothing. A truly wonderful creature, strangely different from the shy, skittish, nervous, superstitious, civilized beasts. We turned him loose, and, strange to say, he never ran away from us or refused to be caught, but behaved as if he had known Scotch boys all his life, probably because we were about as wild as young Indians. One day, when Father happened to have a little leisure, he said, Now, barons, run down the meadow and get your pony and learn to ride him. So we led him out to a smooth place near an Indian mound back of the shanty, where Father directed us to begin. I mounted for the first memorable lesson, crossed the mound, and set out at a slow walk along the wagon track made in hauling lumber. Then father shouted, Whop him up, John, whop him up, make him gallop. Gallopin' is easier and better than walkin' or trottin'. 
Jack was willing, and away he sped at a good fast gallop. I managed to keep my balance fairly well by holding fast to the mane, but could not keep from bumping up and down, for I was plump and elastic, and so was Jack. Therefore, about half of the time I was in the air. After a quarter of a mile or so of this curious transportation, I cried, Whoa, Jack! The wonderful creature seemed to understand Scotch, for he stopped so suddenly I flew over his head, but he stood perfectly still as if that flying method of dismounting were the regular way. Jumping on again, I bumped and bobbed back along the grassy flowery track, over the Indian mound, cried, Whoa, Jack! flew over his head, and alighted in father's arms as gracefully as if it were all intended for circus work. After going over the course five or six times in the same free picturesque style, I gave place to Brother David, whose performances were much like my own. In a few weeks, however, or a month, we were taking adventurous rides more than a mile long out to a big meadow frequented by sandhill cranes, and returning safely with wonderful stories of the great long-legged birds we had seen, and how on the whole journey away and back we had fallen off only five or six times. Gradually we learned to gallop through the woods without roads of any sort, bareback and without rope or bridle, guiding only by leaning from side to side or by slight knee pressure. In this free way we used to amuse ourselves, riding at full speed across a big kettle that was on our farm without holding on by either mane or tail. These so-called kettles were formed by the melting of large detached blocks of ice that had been buried in moraine material thousands of years ago when the ice sheet that covered all this region was receding. As the buried ice melted, of course the moraine material above and about it fell in, forming hopper-shaped hollows, while the grass growing on their sides and around them prevented the rain and wind from filling them up. The one we performed in was perhaps seventy or eighty feet wide and twenty or thirty feet deep, and without a saddle or hold of any kind it was not easy to keep from slipping over Jack's head in diving into it or over his tail climbing out. This was fine sport on the long summer Sundays when we were able to steal away before meeting time without being seen. We got very warm and red at it, and oftentimes poor Jack, dripping with sweat like his riders, seemed to have been boiled in that kettle. In Scotland we had often been admonished to be bold, and this advice we passed on to Jack, who had already got many a wild lesson from Indian boys. Once, when teaching him to jump muddy streams, I made him try the creek in our meadow at a place where it is about twelve feet wide. He jumped bravely enough, but came down with a grand splash hardly more than halfway over. The water was only about a foot in depth, but the black vegetable mud half afloat was unfathomable. I managed to wallow ashore, but poor Jack sank deeper and deeper until only his head was visible in the black abyss, and his Indian fortitude was desperately tried. His foundering so suddenly in the treacherous gulf recalled the story of the abbot of Aberbrothock's bell, which went down with a gurgling sound while bubbles rose and burst around. I had to go to father for help. He tied a long hemp rope brought from Scotland around Jack's neck, and Tom and Jerry seemed to have all they could do to pull him out, after which I got a solemn scolding for asking 
the poor beast to jump into such a soft bottomless place. We moved into our frame house in the fall, when mother with the rest of the family arrived from Scotland, and when the winter snow began to fly, the burr oak shanty was made into a stable for Jack. Father told us that good meadow hay was all he required, but we fed him corn, lots of it, and he grew very frisky and fat. About the middle of winter his long hair was full of dust, and, as we thought, required washing. So, without taking the frosty weather into account, we gave him a thorough soap and water scouring, and as we failed to get him rubbed dry, a row of icicles formed under his belly. Father happened to see him in this condition, and angrily asked what we had been about. We said Jack was dirty, and we had washed him to make him healthy. He told us we ought to be ashamed of ourselves, soaking the poor beast in cold water at this time of year, and when we wanted to clean him we should have sense enough to use the brush and curry comb. In summer Dave or I had to ride after the cows every evening about sundown, and Jack got so accustomed to bringing in the drove that when we happened to be a few minutes late he used to go off alone at the regular time and bring them home at a gallop. It used to make father very angry to see Jack chasing the cows like a shepherd dog, running from one to the other and giving each a bite on the rump to keep them on the run, flying before him as if pursued by wolves. Father would declare at times that the wicked beast had the devil in him and would be the death of the cattle. The corral and barn were just at the foot of a hill, and he made a great display of the drove on the home stretch as they walloped down that hill with their tails on end. One evening, when the Pell-Mell Wild West show was at its wildest, it made Father so extravagantly mad that he ordered me to shoot Jack. I went to the house and brought the gun, suffering most horrible mental anguish, such as I suppose unhappy Abraham felt when commanded to slay Isaac. Jack's life was spared, however, though I can't tell what finally became of him. I wish I could. After father bought a span of workhorses, he was sold to a man who said he was going to ride him across the plains to California. We had him, I think, some five or six years. He was the stoutest, gentlest, bravest little horse I ever saw. He never seemed tired, could canter all day with a man about as heavy as himself on his back, and feared nothing. Once fifty or sixty pounds of beef that was tied on his back slid over his shoulders along his neck and weighed down his head to the ground, fairly anchoring him. But he stood patient and still for half an hour or so without making the slightest struggle to free himself while I was away getting help to untie the pack rope and set the load back in its place. As I was the eldest boy, I had the care of our first span of workhorses, their names were Nob and Nell. Nob was very intelligent and even affectionate, and could learn almost anything. Nell was entirely different, bulky and stubborn, though we managed to teach her a good many circus tricks, but she never seemed to like to play with us in anything like an affectionate way as Nob did. We turned them out one day into the pasture, and an Indian, hiding in the brush that had sprung up after the grass fires had been kept out, managed to catch Nob tied a rope to her jaw for a bridle, rode her to Green Lake about thirty or forty miles away, and tried to sell her for fifteen dollars. All our hearts were sore, as if one of the family had been lost. We hunted everywhere and could not at first imagine what had become of her, 
we discovered her track where the fence was broken down, and following it for a few miles made sure the track was Nobs, and a neighbor told us he had seen an Indian riding fast through the woods on a horse that looked like Nob, but we could find no further trace of her until a month or two after she was lost, and we had given up hope of ever seeing her again. Then we learned that she had been taken from an Indian by a farmer at Green Lake because he saw that she had been shod and had worked in harness. So when the Indian tried to sell her, the farmer said, You are a thief. This is a white man's horse. You stole her. No, said the Indian. I bought her from Prairie du Chien, and she has always been mine. The man, pointing to her feet and the marks of the harness, said, You are lying. I will take that horse away from you and put her in my pasture, and if you come near it I will set the dogs on you. Then he advertised her. One of our neighbors happened to see the advertisement and brought us the glad news, and great was our rejoicing when father brought her home. That Indian must have treated her with terrible cruelty, for when I was riding her through the pasture several years afterward, looking for another horse that we wanted to catch, as we approached the place where she had been captured, she stood stock still, gazing through the bushes, fearing the Indian might still be hiding there, ready to spring. And she was so excited that she trembled, and her heartbeats were so loud that I could hear them distinctly as I sat on her back, bump, 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 like the drumming of a partridge. So vividly had she remembered her terrible experiences. She was a great pet and favorite with the whole family, quickly learned playful tricks, came running when we called, seemed to know everything we said to her, and had the utmost confidence in our friendly kindness. We used to cut and shock and husk the Indian corn in the fall, until a keen Yankee stopped overnight at our house, and among other labor-saving notions, convinced father that it was better to let it stand, and husk it at his leisure during the winter, then turn in the cattle to eat the leaves and trample down the stalks, so that they could be plowed under in the spring. In this winter method each of us took two rows and husked into baskets and emptied the corn on the ground in piles of fifteen to twenty basketfuls, then loaded it into the wagon to be hauled to the crib. This was cold, painful work, the temperature being oftentimes far below zero, and the ground covered with dry, frosty snow, giving rise to miserable crops of chilblains and frosted fingers a sad change from the merry Indian summer husking when the big yellow pumpkins covered the cleared fields, golden corn, golden pumpkins gathered in the hazy golden weather. Sad change, indeed, but we occasionally got some fun out of the nipping, shivery work from hungry prairie chickens and squirrels and mice that came about us. The piles of corn were often left in the field several days, and while loading them into the wagon we usually found field mice in them, big, blunt-nosed, strong-scented fellows that we were taught to kill just because they nibbled a few grains of corn. I used to hold one, while it was still warm, up to Nob's nose for the fun of seeing her make faces and snort at the smell of it, and I would say, Here, Nob, as if offering her a lump of sugar. One day I offered her an extra-fine, fat, plump specimen, something like a little woodchuck or muskrat, and, to my astonishment, after smelling it curiously and doubtfully, as if wondering what the gift might be, and rubbing it back and forth in the palm of my hand with her upper lip, she deliberately took it into her mouth, crunched and munched and chewed it fine, and swallowed it, bones, teeth, head, tail, everything. Not a single hair of that mouse was wasted. 
while she was chewing it she nodded and grunted as though critically tasting and relishing it my father was a steadfast enthusiast on religious matters and of course attended almost every sort of church meeting especially revival meetings they were occasionally held in summer but mostly in winter when the sleighing was good and plenty of time available one hot summer day father drove knob to portage and back twenty-four miles over a sandy road it was hot hard sultry day's work and she had evidently been overdriven in order to get home in time for one of these meetings i shall never forget how tired and wilted she looked that evening when i unhitched her how she drooped in her stall too tired to eat or even to lie down next morning it was plain that her lungs were inflamed all the dreadful symptoms were just the same as my own when i had pneumonia father sent for a methodist minister a very energetic resourceful man who was a blacksmith farmer butcher and horse doctor as well as minister but all his gifts and skill were of no avail knob was doomed we bathed her head and tried to get her to eat something but she couldn't eat and in about a couple of weeks we turned her loose to let her come round the house and see us in the weary suffering and loneliness of the shadow of death she tried to follow us children so long her friends and workmates and playmates it was awfully touching she had several hemorrhages and in the forenoon of her last day after she had had one of her dreadful spells of bleeding and gasping for breath she came to me trembling with beseeching heart-breaking looks and after i had bathed her head and tried to soothe and pet her she lay down and gasped and died all the family gathered about her weeping with aching hearts then dust to dust she was the most faithful intelligent playful affectionate human-like horse i ever knew and she won all our hearts of the many advantages of farm life for boys one of the greatest is the gaining a real knowledge of animals as fellow mortals learning to respect them and love them and even to win some of their love thus godlike sympathy grows and thrives and spreads far beyond the teachings of churches and schools where too often the mean blinding loveless doctrine is taught that animals have neither mind nor soul have no rights that we are bound to respect and were made only for man to be petted spoiled slaughtered or enslaved at first we were afraid of snakes but soon learned that most of them were harmless the only venomous species seen on our farm were the rattlesnake and the copperhead one of each david saw the rattler and we both saw the copperhead one day when my brother came in from his work he reported that he had seen a snake that made a queer buzzy noise with its tail this was the only rattlesnake seen on our farm though we heard of them being common on limestone hills eight or ten miles distant we discovered the copperhead when we were ploughing and we saw and felt at the first long fixed half-charmed admiring stare at him that he was an awfully dangerous fellow every fibre of his strong lithe quivering body his burnished copper-coloured head and above all his fierce able eyes seemed to be overflowing full of deadly power and bade us beware and yet it is only fair to say that this terrible beautiful reptile showed no disposition to hurt us until we threw clods at him and tried to head him off from a log fence into which he was trying to escape we were barefooted and of course afraid to let him get very near 
while we vainly battered him with the loose sandy clods of the freshly ploughed field to hold him back until we could get a stick. Looking us in the eyes after a moment's pause, he probably saw we were afraid, and he came right straight at us, snapping and looking terrible, drove us out of his way, and won his fight. Out on the open sandy hills there were a good many thick, burly blow-snakes, the kind that puffed themselves up and hiss. Our Yankee declared that their breath was very poisonous and that we must not go near them. A handsome, ringed species common in damp, shady places was, he told us, the most wonderful of all the snakes, for if chopped into pieces, however small, the fragments would wriggle themselves together again, and the restored snake would go on about its business as if nothing had happened. The commonest kinds were the striped, slender species of the meadows and streams, good swimmers that lived mostly on frogs. Once I observed one of the larger ones, about two feet long, pursuing a frog in our meadow, and it was wonderful to see how fast the legless, footless, wingless, finless hunter could run. The frog, of course, knew its enemy and was making desperate efforts to escape to the water and hide in the marsh mud. He was a fine, sleek, yellow, muscular fellow, and was springing over the tall grass in wide, arching jumps. The green-striped snake, gliding swiftly and steadily, was keeping the frog in sight, and, had I not interfered, would probably have tired out the poor jumper. Then, perhaps, while digesting and enjoying his meal, the happy snake would himself be swallowed, frog and all, by a hawk. Again, to our astonishment, the small specimens were attacked by our hens, they pursued and pecked away at them until they killed and devoured them, oftentimes quarreling over the division of the spoil, though it was not easily divided. We watched the habits of the swift darting dragonflies, wild bees, butterflies, wasps, beetles, etc., and soon learned to discriminate between those that might be safely handled and the pinching or stinging species. But of all our wild neighbors, the mosquitoes were the first with which we became very intimately acquainted. The beautiful meadow, lying warm in the spring sunshine, outspread between our lily-rimmed lake and the hill slope that our shanty stood on, sent forth thirsty swarms of the little gray, speckly, singing, stinging pests, and how tellingly they introduced themselves. Of little avail were the smudges that we made on muggy evenings to drive them away, and amid the many lessons which they insisted upon teaching us, we wondered more and more at the extent of their knowledge, especially that in their tiny, flimsy bodies room could be found for such cunning palates. They would drink their fill from brown smoky Indians, or from old white folk flavored with tobacco and whiskey when no better could be had, but the surpassing fineness of their taste was best manifested by their enthusiastic appreciation of boys full of lively red blood, and of girls in full bloom fresh from cool Scotland or England. On these it was pleasant to witness their enjoyment as they feasted. Indians, we were told, believed that if they were brave fighters they would go after death to a happy country abounding in game where there were no mosquitoes and no cowards for cowards were driven away by themselves to a miserable country where there was no game fit to eat, and where the sky was always dark with huge gnats and mosquitoes as big as pigeons. We were great admirers of the little black water bugs. Their whole lives seemed to be play, skimming, swimming, swirling, and waltzing together in little groups on the edge of the lake, 
and in the meadow springs, dancing to music we never could hear. The long-legged skaters, too, seemed wonderful fellows, shuffling about on top of the water, with air-bubbles like little bladders tangled under their hairy feet, and we often wished that we also might be shod in the same way, to enable us to skate on the lake in summer as well as in icy winter. Not less wonderful were the boatmen, swimming on their backs, pulling themselves along with a pair of oar-like legs. Great was the delight of brothers David and Daniel and myself when father gave us a few pine boards for a boat, and it was a memorable day when we got that boat built and launched into the lake. Never shall I forget our first sail over the gradually deepening water, the sunbeams pouring through it revealing the strange plants covering the bottom, and the fishes coming about us staring and wondering as if the boat were a monstrous, strange fish. The water was so clear that it was almost invisible, and when we floated slowly out over the plants and fishes, we seemed to be miraculously sustained in the air while silently exploring a veritable fairyland. We always had to work hard, but if we worked still harder we were occasionally allowed a little spell in the long summer evenings about sundown to fish and on Sundays an hour or two to sail quietly without fishing rod or gun when the lake was calm. Therefore we gradually learned something about its inhabitants. Pickerel, sunfish, black bass, perch, shiners, pumpkin seeds, ducks, loons, turtles, muskrats, etc. We saw the sunfishes making their nests in little openings in the rushes where the water was only a few feet deep, plowing up and shoving away the soft gray mud with their noses, like pigs, forming round bowls five or six inches in depth and about two feet in diameter, in which their eggs were deposited. And with what beautiful, unweariable devotion they watched and hovered over them, and chased away prowling, spawn-eating enemies that ventured within a rod or two of the precious nest. The pickerel is a savage fish, endowed with marvelous strength and speed. It lies in wait for its prey on the bottom, perfectly motionless like a waterlogged stick, watching everything that moves with fierce, hungry eyes. Oftentimes, when we were fishing for some other kinds over the edge of the boat, a pickerel that we had not noticed would come like a bolt of lightning and seize the fish we had caught before we could get it into the boat. The very first pickerel that I ever caught jumped into the air to seize a small fish dangling on my line, and, missing its aim, fell plump into the boat as if it had dropped from the sky. Some of our neighbors fished for pickerel through the ice in midwinter. They usually drove a wagon out onto the lake, set a large number of lines baited with live minnows, hung a loop of the lines over a small bush planted at the side of each hole, and watched to see the loops pulled off when a fish had taken the bait. Large quantities of pickerel were often caught in this cruel way. Our beautiful lake, named Fountain Lake by father, but Mears Lake by the neighbors, is one of the many small glacier lakes that adorn the Wisconsin landscapes. It is fed by twenty or thirty meadow springs, is about a half a mile long, half as wide, and surrounded by low, finely mottled hills dotted with oak and hickory, and meadows full of grasses and sedges and many beautiful orchids and ferns. First there is a zone of green shining rushes, and just beyond the rushes a zone of white and orange water lilies fifty or sixty feet wide, forming a magnificent border. 
On bright days, when the lake was rippled by a breeze, the lilies and sun-spangles danced together in radiant beauty, and it became difficult to discriminate between them. On Sundays, after or before chores and sermons and Bible lessons, we drifted about on the lake for hours, especially in lily time, getting finest lessons and sermons from the water and flowers, ducks, fishes, and muskrats. In particular, we took Christ's advice and devoutly considered the lilies, how they grow up in beauty out of gray lime mud and ride gloriously among the breezy sun spangles. On our way home, we gathered grand bouquets of them to be kept fresh all the week. No flower was hailed with greater wonder and admiration by the European settlers in general, Scotch, English, and Irish, than this white water lily, Nymphaea odorata. It is a magnificent plant, queen of the inland waters, pure white, three or four inches in diameter, the most beautiful, sumptuous, and deliciously fragrant of all our Wisconsin flowers. No lily garden in civilization we had ever seen could compare with our lake garden. The next most admirable flower in the estimation of settlers in this part of the New World was the pasque flower, or wind flower, anemone patens, variant Nutaliana. It is the very first to appear in the spring, covering the cold gray-black ground with cheery blossoms. Before the axe or plough had touched the oak openings of Wisconsin, they were swept by running fires almost every autumn after the grass became dry. If from any cause, such as early snowstorms or late rains, they happened to escape the autumn fire besom, they were likely to be burned in the spring after the snow melted. But whether burned in the spring or fall, ashes and bits of charred twigs and grass stems made the whole country look dismal. Then, before a single grass blade had sprouted, a hopeful multitude of large, hairy, silky buds about as thick as one's thumb came to light, pushing up through the black and gray ashes and cinders, and before these buds were fairly free from the ground they opened wide and displayed purple blossoms about two inches in diameter, giving beauty for ashes in glorious abundance. Instead of remaining in the ground awaiting for warm weather and companions, this admirable plant seems to be in haste to rise and cheer the desolate landscape. Then, at its leisure, after other plants had come to its help, it spread its leaves and grew up to a height of about two or three feet. The spreading leaves formed a whorl on the ground and another about the middle of the stem as an involucre, and on top of the stem the silky, hairy, long-tailed seeds formed a head like a second flower. A little church was established among the early settlers, and the meetings at first were held in our house. After working hard all the week, it was difficult for boys to sit still through long sermons without falling asleep, especially in warm weather. In this drowsy trouble, the charming anemone came to our help. A pocketful of the pungent seeds industriously nibbled while the discourses were at their dullest, kept us awake and filled our minds with flowers. The next great flower wonders on which we lavished admiration, not only for beauty of color and size, but for their curious shapes, were the cypripediums called lady slippers or Indian moccasins. They were so different from the familiar flowers of old Scotland. Several species grew in our meadow and on shady hillsides, yellow, rose-colored, and some nearly white, an inch or more in diameter, and shaped exactly like Indian moccasins. 
They caught the eye of all the European settlers and made them gaze and wonder like children. And so did Calopogon, Pogonia, Spiranthes, and many other fine plant people that lived in our meadow. The beautiful Turk's turban, Lilium superbum, growing on stream banks, was rare in our neighborhood, but the orange lily grew in abundance on dry ground beneath the burr oaks, and often brought Aunt Ray's lily bed in Scotland to mind. The butterfly weed, with its brilliant scarlet flowers, attracted flocks of butterflies, and made fine masses of color. With autumn came a glorious abundance and variety of asters, those beautiful plant stars, together with goldenrods, sunflowers, daisies, and liatris of different species, while around the shady margin of the meadow many ferns in beds and vase-like groups spread their beautiful fronds, especially the osmundus, claytoniana, regalis, and cinnamomea, and the sensitive and ostrich ferns. Early in summer we feasted on strawberries that grew in rich beds beneath the meadow grasses and sedges, as well as in the dry, sunny woods, and in different bogs and marshes and around their borders on our own farm and along the Fox River, we found dewberries and cranberries, and a glorious profusion of huckleberries, the fountainheads of pies of wondrous taste and size, colored in the heart like sunsets. Nor were we slow to discover the value of the hickory trees, yielding both sugar and nuts. We carefully counted the different kinds on our farm, and every morning when we could steal a few minutes before breakfast, after doing the chores, we visited the trees that had been wounded by the axe, to scrape off and enjoy the thick, white, delicious syrup that exuded from them, and gather the nuts as they fell in the mellow Indian summer, making haste to get a fair share with the sapsuckers and squirrels. The hickory makes fine masses of color in the fall, every leaf a flower, but it was the sweet sap and sweet nuts that first interested us. No harvest in the Wisconsin woods was ever gathered with more pleasure and care. Also, to our delight, we found plenty of hazelnuts, and in a few places abundance of wild apples. They were desperately sour, and we used to fill our pockets with them and dare each other to eat one without making a face. No easy feat. One hot summer day father told us that we ought to learn to swim. This was one of the most interesting suggestions he had ever offered, but precious little time was allowed for trips to the lake, and he seldom tried to show us how. Go to the frogs, he said, and they will give you all the lessons you need. Watch their arms and legs and see how smoothly they kick themselves along and dive and come up. When you want to dive, keep your arms by your side or over your head and kick, and when you want to come up, let your legs drag and paddle with your hands. We found a little basin among the rushes at the south end of the lake, about waist-deep and a rod or two wide, shaped like a sunfish's nest. Here we kicked and plashed for many a lesson, faithfully trying to imitate frogs, but the smooth, comfortable sliding gait of our amphibious teachers seemed hopelessly hard to learn. When we tried to kick frog fashion, down went our heads as if weighted with lead the moment our feet left the ground. One day it occurred to me to hold my breath as long as I could and let my head sink as far as it liked without paying any attention to it, and try to swim under the water instead of on the surface. This method was a great success, for at the very first trial I managed to cross the basin without touching bottom, and soon learned the use of my limbs. 
then of course swimming with my head above water soon became so easy that it seemed perfectly natural david tried the plan with the same success then we began to count the number of times that we could swim around the basin without stopping to rest and after twenty or thirty rounds failed to tire us we proudly thought that a little more practice would make us about as amphibious as frogs on the fourth of july of this swimming year one of the lawson boys came to visit us and we went down to the lake to spend the great warm day with the fishes and ducks and turtles after gliding about on the smooth mirror water telling stories and enjoying the company of the happy creatures about us we rode to our bathing pool and david and i went in for a swim while our companion fished from the boat a little way out beyond the rushes after a few turns in the pool it occurred to me that it was now about time to try deep water swimming through the thick growth of rushes and lilies was somewhat dangerous especially for a beginner because one's arms and legs might be entangled among the long limber stems nevertheless i ventured and struck out boldly enough for the boat where the water was twenty or thirty feet deep when i reached the end of the little skiff i raised my right hand to take hold of it to surprise lawson whose back was toward me and who was not aware of my approach but i failed to reach high enough and of course the weight of my arm and the stroke against the overleaning stern of the boat shoved me down and i sank struggling frightened and confused as soon as my feet touched the bottom i slowly rose to the surface but before i could get breath enough to call for help sank back again and lost all control of myself after sinking and rising i don't know how many times some water got into my lungs and i began to drown then suddenly my mind seemed to clear i remembered that i could swim under water and making a desperate struggle toward the shore i reached a point where with my toes on the bottom i got my mouth above the surface gasped for help and was pulled into the boat this humiliating accident spoiled the day and we all agreed to keep it a profound secret my sister sarah had heard my cry for help and on our arrival at the house inquired what had happened were you drowning john i heard you cry you couldn't get out lawson made haste to reply oh no he was just haverin making fun i was very much ashamed of myself and at night after calmly reviewing the affair concluded that there had been no reasonable cause for the accident and that i ought to punish myself for so nearly losing my life from unmanly fear accordingly at the very first opportunity i stole away to the lake by myself got into my boat and instead of going back to the old swimming bowl for further practice or to try to do sanely and well what i had so ignominiously failed to do in my first adventure that is to swim out through the rushes and lilies i rode directly out to the middle of the lake stripped stood up on the seat in the stern and with grim deliberation took a header and dove straight down thirty or forty feet turned easily and letting my feet drag paddled straight to the surface with my hands as father had at first directed me to do i then swam around the boat glorying in my suddenly acquired confidence and victory over myself climbed into it and dived again with the same triumphant success i think i went down four or five times and each time as i made the dive spring shouted aloud take that feeling that i was getting most gloriously even with myself never again from that day to this have i lost control of myself in water if suddenly thrown overboard at sea in the dark or even while asleep 
I think I would immediately write myself in a way some would call instinct, rise among the waves, catch my breath, and try to plan what could be better done. Never was victory over self more complete. I have been a good swimmer ever since. At a slow gait, I think, I could swim all day in smooth water, moderate in temperature. When I was a student at Madison, I used to go on long swimming journeys called exploring expeditions along the south shore of Lake Mendota on Saturdays, sometimes alone, sometimes with another amphibious explorer by the name of Fuller. My adventures in Fountain Lake call to mind the story of a boy who, in climbing a tree to rob a crow's nest, fell and broke his leg, but as soon as it healed compelled himself to climb to the top of the tree he had fallen from. Like Scotch children in general, we were taught grim self-denial, in season and out of season, to mortify the flesh keep our bodies in subjection to Bible laws, and mercilessly punish ourselves for every fault imagined or committed. A little boy, while helping his sister to drive home the cows, happened to use a forbidden word. "'I'll have to tell father on ye,' said the horrified sister. "'I'll tell him that ye said a bad word.' "'Well, the boy, by way of excuse, I couldn't help the word coming into me, and it's not war to speak it oot than to let it run through ye.' The Scotch fiddler, playing at a wedding, drank so much whiskey that on the way home he fell by the roadside. In the morning he was ashamed and angry, and determined to punish himself. Making haste to the house of a friend, a gamekeeper, he called him out and requested the loan of a gun. The alarmed gamekeeper, not liking the fiddler's looks and voice, anxiously inquired what he was going to do with it. Surely, he said, you're not going to shoot yourself. No, with characteristic candor, replied the penitent fiddler. I didn't think I was just exactly kill myself, but I was going to take a dander doon the burn brook with the gun and give myself a devil of a flag fright. One calm summer evening, a red-headed woodpecker was drowned in our lake. The accident happened at the south end, opposite our memorable swimming hole, a few rods from the place where I came so near being drowned years before. I had returned to the old home during a summer vacation of the State University, and having made a beginning in botany, I was, of course, full of enthusiasm, and ran eagerly to my beloved Pagonia, Calopogon, and Cypripedium Gardens, Osmunda Ferneries, and the lake lilies and pitcher plants. A little before sundown the day breeze died away, and the lake, reflecting the wooded hills like a mirror, was dimpled and dotted and streaked here and there, where fishes and turtles were poking out their heads, and muskrats were sculling themselves along with their flat tails, making glittering tracks. After lingering a while, dreamily recalling the old hard half-happy days, and watching my favorite red-headed woodpeckers pursuing moths like regular fly-catchers, I swam out through the rushes and up the middle of the lake, to the north end and back, gliding slowly looking about me, enjoying the scenery as I would in a saunter along the shore, and studying the habits of the animals as they were explained and recorded on the smooth glassy water. On the way back, when I was within a hundred rods or so of the end of my voyage, I noticed a peculiar plashing disturbance that could not, I thought, be made by a jumping fish or any other inhabitant of the lake, for instead of low, regular, out-circling ripples such as are made by the popping up of a head, or like those raised by the quick splash of a leaping fish, or diving loon, or muskrat, 
a continuous struggle was kept up for several minutes ere the outspreading interfering ring waves began to die away swimming hastily to the spot to try to discover what had happened i found one of my woodpeckers floating motionless with outspread wings all was over had i been a minute or two earlier i might have saved him he had glanced on the water i suppose in pursuit of a moth was unable to rise from it and died struggling as i nearly did at this same spot like me he seemed to have lost his mind in blind confusion and fear the water was warm and had he kept still with his head a little above the surface he would sooner or later have been wafted ashore the best aimed flights of birds and man gang aft angly but this was the first case i had witnessed of a bird losing its life by drowning doubtless accidents to animals are far more common than is generally known i have seen quails killed by flying against our house when suddenly startled some birds get entangled in hairs of their own nests and die once i found a poor snipe in our meadow that was unable to fly on account of difficult egg birth pitying the poor mother i picked her up out of the grass and helped her as gently as i could and as soon as the egg was born she flew gladly away oftentimes i have thought it strange that one could walk through the woods and mountains and plains for years without seeing a single blood spot most wild animals get into the world and out of it without being noticed nevertheless we at last sadly learn that they are all subject to the vicissitudes of fortune like ourselves many birds lose their lives in storms i remember a particularly severe wisconsin winter when the temperature was many degrees below zero and the snow was deep preventing the quail which feed on the ground from getting anything like enough of food as was pitifully shown by a flock i found on our farm frozen solid in a thicket of oak sprouts they were in a circle about a foot wide with their heads outward packed close together for warmth yet all had died without a struggle perhaps more from starvation than frost many small birds lose their lives in the storms of early spring or even summer one mild spring morning i picked up more than a score out of the grass and flowers most of them darling singers that had perished in a sudden storm of sleety rain and hail in a hollow at the foot of an oak tree that i had chopped down one cold winter day i found a poor ground squirrel frozen solid in its snug grassy nest in the middle of a store of nearly a peck of wheat it had carefully gathered i carried it home and gradually thawed and warmed it in the kitchen hoping it would come to life like a pickerel i caught in our lake through a hole in the ice which after being frozen as hard as a bone and thawed at the fireside squirmed itself out of the grasp of the cook when she began to scrape it bounced off the table and danced about on the floor making wonderful springy jumps as if trying to find its way back home to the lake but for the poor spermophile nothing i could do in the way of revival was of any avail its life had passed away without the slightest struggle as it lay asleep curled up like a ball with its tail wrapped about it end of chapter three